Well, if we think about the question of where we're at as a society, as, as a culture, uh, there is no doubt that we're at a time of extraordinarily rapid change. Uh, you, you think about a whole bunch of things going on at the moment. Um, one of the big ones is AI, uh, what's happening in terms of <clears throat> artificial intelligence and the impact that that has, particularly through our phones and social media and the impact on the education uh, of our world, the surveillance of people, a whole range of areas where we're going through extraordinary change. But probably the area that comes to mind, I think, for most of us, when we think about the changes in our society, are around what is acceptable and promoted in terms of sexuality. Uh, I've got a friend who blogs uh, frequently around issues of culture and what's going on in the culture. And he's coined a phrase, which I think is an apt description. Uh, most people would recognise that we're in a secular age. Uh, my friend Steve McAlpine describes it as a sexular age. That our sexual appetites, our sexual preferences, our sexual politics are some of the most significant things when it comes to uh, how we function in society. And uh, as we think about the transition over the last decades, we are very much living in a culture of you do you. Um, independence, uh, self-autonomy, uh, love is love, transgender and gender rights being human rights. All this has to do with the fact that no one out there should be saying what you must do. All of us have the right to determine that for ourselves. And that's the prevailing climate. Uh, I don't know if any of you um, watched on the ABC during the week the uh, little documentary Falau. Did some of you see that? A few of you did. I'm not quite sure why it was on, um, why they did it, why now, what it was about. But it, it was a very polarising uh, series of events in our society just a, a couple of years back with Israel Folau, of course, uh, coming out on his Instagram feed and um, Twitter, the uh, verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and of course, it, it definitely tapped into a, an extraordinary amount of angst in society. You, uh, I guess, at the same time, you're exploring the issues of um, same-sex marriage and whether that's a justice issue or a moral issue. There's so many things that have changed in such a short period of time. And I suspect that as we think about uh, our children and youth, the world that they are going to be navigating as they come to grips with their own identity, as they go through adolescence, as they enter into adulthood, will be completely different uh, to the world that most of us, uh, even those of us who were going through that period 10 years ago, were navigating. It's, it's just extraordinary change. And in this extraordinary change, I, I think the, the danger is that we get caught up in the tidal movement of the culture around about us. That we are kind of thinking, what are people saying? What are people thinking? How do we, uh, how do we relate to each other around these issues? Uh, more and more people, it seems, are being affected by issues of, of, um, of, of, of gender, issues 
of, of sexual preference and so on. How are we as Christians to deal with this? And one way that Christians have uh, approached this in recent times, or at least people within church have approached this in recent times, is to say that um, sexuality is just something that we are learning about through the centuries, through the years. And uh, as Christians used to think that slavery was okay, and, uh, and now we know that it's not, so too Christians used to think that, um, that uh, issues of homosexuality, for example, uh, weren't okay, but now we realise that they are. And there's a progressive kind of view within uh, church circles and widespread church circles that at the moment are significantly dividing Christians. So it's not just a, a polarising in our society, but a polarising in churches. Uh, there, there's um, recently been in Kigali, um, in Rwanda, uh, a conference of, of global Anglicans, um, a movement they call GAFCON, uh, where 85% of Anglican uh, churches in the world were represented, um, largely and significantly from Africa, but also from um, uh, other areas of the global south and people scattered from all around the globe. And they indicated that 85% uh, of global Anglicans were represented at that conference and there was a vote of no confidence in the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, uh, no confidence because the Archbishop of Canterbury had chosen to actively support uh, homosexual, practicing homosexual uh, dean at his cathedral and the promotion of that amongst priests and bishops in the denomination. Now, th these might not be particularly big issues for us in a little independent church, but it's just the kind of quantum shift that's going on around the world. And we need to think about where we are anchored. Like where, where do we find our source of, of, of revelation? Where, where do we uh, get our ideas from? What, what do we go with? How do, how do we determine what to think and what to say and what to do and how to go about that? Well, this is a good passage to have a look at. And uh, as I was preparing uh, this during the week, I had all kinds of, um, of provocative titles uh, for this sermon. And then I thought, no, you don't want provocative titles these days because people search church websites to get things... Uh, that might get the church into trouble. So I've decided to call it something completely boring, like more than instructions. Um, why have I done that? Well, because the word instructions gets used um, quite a bit in this passage. Uh, verse one, we instructed you how to live. Uh, verse two, what instructions we gave you. Uh, down in verse eight, rejects this instruction and so on. So the word instructions there, now you can forget it. Um, let's have a think about uh, Alignment. Where do we align? Um, what's our point of reference? Well, the passage helps us, I think, to see that. So look first of all at verse 1. As for these matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Here is 
the framework for thinking and acting Christianly. Are we seeking to please God? Um, there's enormous pressure on us to please other people. Um, extraordinary pressure to fit in, to conform, to, to not rock the boat, to, to say and do and be the sort of person that can just kind of blend in with everybody around about them. But we are called as followers of Jesus to please God. That's, that's the calling of all of us if we've come to the Lord Jesus, to be people who seek not to please people primarily, uh, and Paul talks about not being a people pleaser back in chapter 2 and verse 4, but to please God. And how can we know what is pleasing to God? Now, I've noticed that, um, that God gets shut out of the conversation. Um, so in, in the Israel Folau documentary that was going on um, over the last few days, I, I watched it fairly carefully, um, there was discussion about what was acceptable human behaviour and how that has shifted and changed. Nobody, um, or very few people in the documentary, were concerned about what would be acceptable godly behaviour. God was not the point of reference. But the word of God calls us to be people who, who don't please people around about us so that we can fit in, but who please God. We're people who've been saved by God to be brought into relationship with God. And as, as Chris led us in prayer before that we might glorify God, that's first and foremost about pleasing God. So that's our, our reference point. That, that, in a sense, is the start of our ethic. We are to be God-pleasers rather than people-pleasers. Secondly, uh, to think Christianly about these things and, and have alignment, we need to hear God among all the voices that are competing for our attention. Um, so in verse 1 again, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is not simply Paul's appeal to them. This is not uh, a kind of social or cultural comment that he's making. In fact, the word instructions that's in there, it's really unhelpful because the Greek word behind instructions is actually command. This is the command that I gave you and these are the commands that you've received um, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. I mean, you're not dealing with an instruction manual. Uh, yesterday, I decided that I would put roof racks uh, on our little blue car and uh, they came in three separate boxes with all kinds of different things. And so I very, very carefully paid attention to the instructions um, and discovered that it all fitted together perfectly, but it was not for an Australian car, it was for a European car. So I've got to take them back. Um, but, but this isn't just a set of instructions that Paul's giving, like follow this, you know, A joins with B and then do C and so on. This is actually the command of the Lord Jesus. By the authority of the Lord Jesus, he's saying these things. Re remember back in chapter 2, he said, we were so pleased that you received the word of God as it actually is the word of God and not simply the word of people. He says similar things down in, uh, in verse 8. Therefore, anyone who, in, who rejects this instruction, same word again, 
does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. They're weighty things that Paul's saying. You, you want to please God, then you need to listen to God's word and align yourself with God's word. And he encourages them to do this more and more. You see it there in verse 1. We'll see it again next week when we look at verse 10. So alignment has to do with being focused on God and, and not ourselves and not simply the people around about us. And that is a Copernican shift for people. Um, in a world that says you do you, where, where it's about individual and personal autonomy, we are saying, no, God is to be at the centre of all things. So what is God saying? How can you please God and how can you keep doing that? And how can we encourage one another to do that more and more? That's the framework. Um, secondly, I, I want us to see just how much uh, this really matters. Um, it, it, look at the language that gets used. So um, first of all, you get the language of God's will and then the language of God's call and then God's punishment and then God's Holy Spirit. Um, so let, let's look at each of these in turn. So first of all, in uh, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. Um, it's a big word, isn't it? Sanctified. It, it literally means uh, it's God's will that you should be set apart to be like God. Things that are holy are sanctified. If you... If you make something holy, then you're changing it from being unclean to making it clean so that it can be acceptable and in the presence of God. It's an idea that comes from the Old Testament. You see it with the clean and unclean animals. You see it with the temple and who could go into the presence of God in the temple and so on. Um, this idea is being brought into uh, the New Testament as God is calling for himself a people who will be holy, set apart to be like him. So it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be holy people. Um, secondly, down in verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So the, the, the framework here, you can see it, it's, it's really big. It's God's will that we be holy people. It's God's call that we be living holy lives. We're called to be sanctified, that is, to be set apart to be like God. We're called to represent God so that as people look at us, they see the way of God because we're seeking to please God, having heard from God how we should live. Um, does this matter? Yes, it matters deeply. Look at verse 6. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Um, now, we, I think we need to be careful around um, issues of judgment and uh, the question of punishment. Um, I think one of the areas that uh, Izzy got himself into trouble with was was putting out a verse that's primarily written to God's people in 1 Corinthians 6 and making it a meme uh, that impacted people out there in the community. 
And that was an unhelpful kind of strategy. And it, um, we, we've seen the outcome of that. But what Paul's saying here is that how you live really does matter. Um, if God's going to value something, then he's not going to um, disregard the things that you're doing. If you matter to God, then he'll call to account for how you live. It shows that, that God values us. See, if, if you went along, say, to university or, or you're studying and nobody ever collected your work and nobody ever marked your, um, your, your work or, or kind of marked the tests or exams that you did, it wouldn't really matter, would it? But the whole thing about having assignments that get marked and having exams for which you get a mark and having to pass the subject at the end of the day, if nothing else, it shows that the work matters. And the reality is that our lives matter. Like the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he returns uh, to bring about a, a true and righteous judgment, that there will be a day of judgment. Why? Because God cares for us. How we live matters. It, it's of significance to God that we live pleasing to him. It matters to God that we're set apart to be like him, to live holy lives. Um, we, we need to understand that God cares about the way that we treat those around about us and so on. Now, all this seems pretty hard, um, and we haven't even got to the details of this yet. I'm still talking about the framework here. Um, but we don't become holy by ourselves, and we're not called to live holy lives in our own strength. Notice it says there in verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, I think we can gloss over the significance of, of Holy Spirit there um, because our Trinitarian way of speaking is to say God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But if you look in the Old Testament at, at the references to God uh, as, um, as Yahweh and his word, and there's a lot of mentions of spirit, you rarely, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, um, read of God as the Holy Spirit. Um, it, it's the spirit of God. It's, it's the spirit of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the spirit of Christ. Um, it's the spirit. But the distinctive thing here in this passage is he's called the Holy Spirit. Um, and, of course, he is the Holy Spirit. He's always the Holy Spirit. But he's the Holy Spirit who empowers God's people to live holy lives. We're not called to this in our own strength, but by the power of God himself. So, framework, um, alignment. We are to be God-pleasing, not people-pleasing. Uh, we're to be hearing God among all the voices. We're to live God's way more and more. God's will is holiness. God's calling is holiness. 
Um, it, it matters to God that we live holy lives and God's spirit enables us uh, to live holy lives. So what's the attitude that Paul's calling them to have? Uh, how are they to live? Well, he focuses on areas of sexuality. Um, and uh, I wonder whether anything, having said that a lot has changed in the last few years, that's one camera angle. The other camera angle is nothing has changed at all. People have the same passions, desires. People have the same selfish will that they have always had. And so what do we see here? Well, verse 3, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It's God's will that we be people who avoid sexual immorality. Now, what does it mean by sexual immorality? Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a quick little insight into the word that's in the background here. It's the word porneia. That's the normal Greek word for sexual immorality, porneia. And of course, you know that we get the modern word pornography uh, from this Greek word porneia. And it's very broad in its scope. Um, it's pretty much got to do with any area of sexual immorality. And you might be thinking, is that um, just adultery or is it fornication or is it um, got to do with um, abuse within marriage? Is it... Is it um, really just if you're sleeping with somebody else or is it what you're looking at? Um, what, where, where do you draw the line? Well, you don't. Um, you work out how wide you can make it. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? Remember when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount um, and people wanted to know whether something was adultery and he said, think about how you look at somebody else. And lust is at the heart of adultery. And so I think we need to think broadly here. And um, fundamentally, I, I guess any sex that is out of God's given context will be sexual immorality. How do we know God's given context? Well, a lot more needs to be said than can be said by looking at this passage. But the overwhelming picture of Scripture is that God has given sexual uh, expression to unite together a husband and a wife in a covenant of marriage. Um, it was made that way from the beginning. It's reaffirmed through the scriptures. Uh, it's encouraged of Christians in 1 Corinthians 7 that there's to be the expression of sexual love between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. Outside of that, I take it is sexual immorality. Now that, of course, then covers a whole range of areas um, in heterosexual sex, in homosexual sex, to do with pornography, to do with adultery, to do with a whole range of different things that will be outside of that. We, as people who are called to please God, to live holy lives, are to avoid it, to, to flee from it, to run from it, to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Of course, it's, it's put there negatively um, as something to avoid because it's something that is insidious and dangerous. Secondly, 
The positive, if you like, for this is, although again it's put negatively at the start, is that we need to learn to control ourselves. So verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy, there it is again, and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So the, the second aspect of this really, um, the, the key to avoiding sexual immorality is learning to control yourself. It, it's self-control. And, and again, what does the scripture have to say about that? Well, very clearly, it's not something that you can do on your own without the help of God. It's a fruit of the spirit, self-control. God's Holy Spirit enables us to exercise holy self-control. And so we need to be prayerful that God will be at work within us. But fundamentally, it's, it's an issue of attitude. Are we seeking to please God, to put him first, to be set apart, to be like God? Or are we wanting to put ourselves first and satisfy our own desires, and our own appetites and our own preferences? And then... The third aspect to the attitude here in verse 6 is that in, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you before. For God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Notice there the other person-centeredness of, of, of sexual attitude. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Um, see, the, the nature of lust is that it's fundamentally selfish. And love, according to the scriptures, is fundamentally other person-centred. So in this context, we are not to be selfish. We're not to be seeking to gratify ourselves. It's not that... We simply have appetites like, a, like a, a need to drink and a need to eat and a need to satisfy ourselves sexually. It's not like that. No, it's not about putting ourselves first. It's about putting God first and doing no wrong by our brother and sister. Love considers others. God's plan for sex is that it should be a loving way of uniting together a husband and wife. That's his plan. Now, to say these things, um, if I was to go back probably even only 20 years, would be no big deal. But to say these things now puts you at odds with the culture around about us. And whereas in the 1970s or 50s or 30s, not that I remember the 30s too well, or the 50s, the 70s, you know, I've still got some tie-dye. The, as we think back about those years, it was very easy, I think, for people to be culturally Christian, um, 
to be called upon to live uh, a sexually holy life was no big deal because you fitted in by and large with the people around about you. Now, to live a sexually holy life is to be different. And at the heart of the difference is the attitude of putting God first and desiring to please God rather than to please ourselves. Well, there's all kinds of implications that can flow from this, um, massive implications. But I wanted primarily to focus on the attitude and to leave you with these words from Psalm 34. Um, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, I once spoke with a young fellow who knew that he needed to become Christian, um, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because he couldn't stop, he said, sleeping with his girlfriend. Um, And he wasn't going to get married. He couldn't do it because he didn't trust God that by following God, it would be good. In fact, Glyn Harrison, um, a Christian psychiatrist in the UK, has written a book on sexual flourishing called A Better Story. He believes that, that Christians actually have a better story to tell because God is the God who created us and knows how we will live and function best. And so God's saying to us, as we put our trust in him, let's trust him in the area of sexuality. Let God be God in our lives in this way. Implications? Well, they're pretty massive, aren't they? Implications for singleness, for relationships, for marriage and for sex. Um, and again, I think for those of us who are, who are parents, who are teachers, uh, who are youth leaders, who are children's ministry leaders, uh, who influence young people, who are impressionable, who are um, overwhelmingly impacted by their peers, by the TV, by YouTube, by the internet, is that God is calling us to disciple young people to understand that God is good, that his ways are true and and right, and and that to trust God is the way forward. Big implications for us there. Um, I've I've put a whole bunch of of books um, on your handouts. Um, Let me just say a couple of things about them. If you're looking for books about marriage that are helpful, um, Christopher Ash, Married for God, is great. Um, Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Likewise, Paul Tripp's book, um, just called Marriage, excellent. Um, a helpful writer, an Australian writer, in terms of, of uh, giving God's perspective on, on sex and in a practical way is Patricia Wirakun, um, who's written The Best Sex for Life. That's a book. Um, for married couples, but she's also written a couple of books for um, adolescents and for children in terms of uh, equipping kids. There's a new book that's just come out um, uh, called Water for My Camels. 
um, which I haven't read yet, but I've, I've seen some reviews that are very good. Navigating the space between singleness and marriage when the Bible doesn't talk about dating. Uh, it's written by a guy in Sydney. And um, I assume that Water for Camels has got something to do with, was it Moses that went to Jethro's daughters and provided some water for their camels or something? I'm not sure. Um, but there's other issues here as well, aren't they? Um, the issues of pornography uh, are just massive. Um, the internet is a pornography distribution device. That is the fundamental uh, major function of the internet. And once upon a time, people might have had to go to a, a news agency and and buy a magazine that was in a sealed packet and put in a brown paper bag and go off and, and, uh, and look at it in some private place. Now people just need to look at their phones. Um, it happens deliberately, it happens accidentally. The impact is massive and exposure is going to begin from the stage that people are looking at devices. It's just going to happen that way. And so it's, it's a massive area, I think, for us to be um, helping each other with, um, equipping one another. Uh, I think it's, um, it's a hard area to talk about because it's uncomfortable to um, confess to something that, that uh, might be damaging relationships with other people, that might be uh, impacting our Christian growth. Uh, that might seem shameful, but it's an area that we need to be uh, encouraging each other with and spurring each other on and holding one another accountable in a helpful way uh, to be people who seek to be holy in the way that we view things. Um, all kinds of stuff there, and um, if you'd like to explore this uh, more, um, there's a whole heap of other um, strategies and, and books and articles and ideas that I could point you towards. Um, I think another area where we need to become increasingly aware uh, as Christians if we are to be uh, not wronging or taking advantage of brothers or sisters is the area of domestic abuse and um, the sad reality that this happens within Christian communities and to call each other and encourage each other uh, to be people who, who love and nurture our relationships with our wives and husbands. Um, the, uh, there's a book there, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage, uh, which, um, which I read. I've, I've read a number of books in this area because Fiona was doing a course on domestic violence. And I confess to seeing some of my own attitudes and behaviours in some of these books. And it made me realise that it's a, it's a hard issue to work on and that we need to be supporting each other. Um, probably the most uh, massive area for Christians grappling with in our culture, however, is how we navigate uh, the LGBTQI plus issues. Um, 
the widespread acceptance uh, of homosexual relationships um, and the way that that is framed as being true to yourself and living out your true self, I think means as Christians we need to think hard and explore with compassion the issues around it. Um, I'd imagine that most of us uh, either, one, struggle with some of these issues, two, have family members who do, or three, have people in our close relationships who, would, uh, who are living in gay relationships and it's way more prevalent than it was 20 or 30 years ago. As Christians, we need to give attention as to how to encourage people to please God and live holy lives without coming across as um, judge and executioner. Jesus, uh, you remember in John 8, uh, when there's the woman who's caught in adultery, um, his response to her was, I think, helpful for us because he said to her, neither will I condemn you, go and do not sin. Um, and I think there's, there's something in those two things that are being held together there. Jesus is not looking at, at adulterous behaviour um, as pleasing to God. It doesn't please God. Uh, but Jesus wants to give hope. And as he calls people uh, to repentance, to, to go and not sin, um, he's calling people to realign themselves, gently realign themselves with, with God and the holiness of God. So there's, there's many issues at work there. Um, and of course, in the last decade, it, it's not just homosexuality that's become mainstream. It's, uh, it's the whole queer agenda of the breaking down of gender altogether. Um, and we, we are now living in an extraordinary time when in most areas of medical science, how you think um, is subject to the biological evidence, but in this area, it's the other way around. And gender um, is an area that, I've just forgotten the word, gender, Dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is a massive issue, particularly for people coming to grips with their own identity. Um, and I think it's, again, an area that we do well to, to understand, to, to do more to um, grasp what's going on. There's a, there's a few books there that are helpful. Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Albury is a, a great writer in this space. Um, he is a man who is attracted to other men. Uh, he's a Christian pastor. He lives a celibate life. 
Sam Albury has also written, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Um, Rosaria Butterfield um, was a, a leading feminist, lesbian professor in humanities, and uh, through hospitality by a Presbyterian minister and his wife, week after week after week after week after week, for a period, I think it was two to three years, um, worked through issues of what the gospel was about and, um, and gave her life to Christ. Uh, Rachel Gilson, um, similarly, written a book, Born Again This Way. Um, th there's, uh, in the area of um, gender dysphoria, there's a book written by a woman who's not a Christian, Abigail Schreier. Uh, it's called Irreversible Damage, Teenage Girls and the Transgender Craze. Um, it's a very helpful book, uh, I think, for, for parents, for teachers uh, to understand the impact of, of what's going on there. And Rob Smith, a, a Sydney guy, has um, just finished a, a PhD uh, on what the Bible has to say about issues of gender and identity, and he's written a, a helpful little primer, a brief book, uh, called How Should We Think About Gender and Identity? But I commend you to um, explore any of these areas that might be most relevant to you.